Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Italian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Gary Milligan, your host. Today we'll be talking to Timothy McCall, the author of Brilliant Bodies, Fashioning Courtly Men in Early Renaissance Italy, which was published earlier this year by the Pennsylvania State University Press. Dr. McCall is Associate Professor of Art History and Director of the Art History Program at Villanova University. He has been the recipient of several fellowships, including long-term residential fellowships at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and at the Harvard University Center for Italian Renaissance Studies at Villa Itati. He's written extensively on men's fashion and sexuality in Renaissance Italy and co-edited the book Visual Cultures of Secrecy in Early Modern Europe. Tim, welcome. Thanks for agreeing to speak with me today. I'm really delighted to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Gary. I'm I'm super excited to be here and to to talk to you in particular about about this book. Yeah, I have to say for all of you out there listening, this book is exceptionally beautiful. I'm less accustomed to art history books because literature books are never as pretty as this, but also just substantially large format and heavy, I will add. So uh, definitely a book that's worth having in the physical format, in my opinion. So I'll plug that there. (laughs) And if I can add, like, you know, I I just thrilled to see a lot of Penn State makes beautiful books with lots of color images. But in particular, when I received them, I didn't know that the um, end papers would be this bright pink. And that, um, that might be my favorite part of the book. Oh, yeah. As a thing. That's a, it's a great surprise. Yeah, it's, it's really, really stunning. Um, so before we dive into the book, I, I just wanted to ask what got you interested in writing about men's dress? Well, it's interesting. So, well, I mean, I find it interesting. I, and this is, I, I sort of use it, I think, as an object lesson also to talk to students where I wrote my, I wrote my dissertation on these lords um, around Parma and the frescoes that they that one lord in particular commissioned um, frescoes that, including um, frescoes related uh, depicting the Griselda cycle, right? A different version, certainly slightly different than than Boccaccio or or Petrarch's versions of of the story. And then another sort of chivalric um, frescoed room, 
there are interesting ideas that about gender that obviously that you know in, that the Griselda cycle engages with, and the, this sort of this other fresco cycle at Torrequiara, a little south of Parma, that has to do with chivalric love. So I was interested in mistresses and and, and gender more broadly, um, but mainly looking at women. And it was one of those things that sort of like when I had a little distance, and I mean this is fifteen or or more years ago now, but when I had maybe a year or two away from my dissertation, I realized what actually I was talking about or needed to be talking about was was masculinity and was men. And so I started moving in that in that direction. And I mean, I, I just realized that a lot of the assumptions that people had been ma- had been making about these lords um, and about their display and about their adornment. Um, so and in particular, jewelry and clothing um, were, I think, sort of overlaid with our own um, assumptions too much about about the way that fashion is gendered. Um, and I think that's something that we'll talk about today. But I realized, and then when I first started this, I gave a, a conference paper at the Renaissance Society of America, and I got pushback um, on some of the claims I was making. And it made me realize I needed to sort of like really do a deep dive into this. And then, you know, so I don't know, 10 years later, this is what this is what's emerged. Um, but I, But I do, you know, it, the, the book is hopefully full of interesting and beautiful things and, 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 and hopefully some, some insightful insights, or well, that's um, hopefully lots of intelligent insights. But at the same time, too, I, you know, I, I really want it to be something that can apply to people thinking critically about masculinity and fashion, even if they're not interested in the 15th century. But of course, you know, particularly for those who are interested in the 15th century. Absolutely. I mean, and I think you and I beat the same drum about the modern assumptions about masculinity. Um, and, and your book challenging those assumptions is, is definitely where we're going to be heading, I think, in this conversation. Uh, so let, let's start. What you, the, even with the title, you, you discuss clothes and bodies of men uh, from the 1400s and tell us that there's an emphasis on brilliance. So and the title of the book is Brilliant Bodies. So let's start there. What, what, is it, what does brilliance mean and how is it expressed in clothing? Well, yeah, so the title is, it's, you know, nicely alliterative. Um, and I, both of these words are super important, right? This, this study in a lot of ways is a study of bodies and of embodiment. And there's certainly been a, a move towards that. I'm, I'm sure some listeners will be familiar with in the humanities of, of all sorts of studies of embodiment. Um, but what really struck me, and I think this is one of those things that scholars of my field kind of like might not have thought, not might not have intentionally thought about, but what you know, it, it's very familiar to them now that now that I've kind of said it, was the the extent to which brilliance and radiance and splendor, um, all of these words that sort of capture Renaissance or aristocracy, relate to light, um, and in even one like polish or pulito, right, which. In Italian, generally now means clean, but in this period, very much related to to light, uh, to polish, and also to sort of class distinctions, right? That we still have with the word polite, um, and so that fundamentally, to understand Renaissance power as it was both sort of expressed and displayed and manifested, um, was all about these sort of light emitting effects, which were you know seen or understood in skin tone and hair and and particularly in display this was a way i'm sorry particularly in in clothing and adornment and this was a way that these sort of aristocratic bodies set themselves apart from you know what i 
very, you know, intentionally called lackluster bodies, right? That bodies that most of the people, um, at least in the 15th century, the vast majority of Renaissance uh, of, of Italians could not afford metals or, or, or um, any sort of reflective materials in their um in their clothing and, and very often couldn't afford silk also, which is you know, another very sort of reflective um, and shimmering uh, textile. Um, and very often they weren't even allowed, even if they could afford it, they weren't, they weren't legally because of some sweary laws allowed to, to, um, to wear them, to display them. And they often used, you know, sort of un, um, very dull, very um, drab clothing um, that was brown, um, without using, you know, I always tell my students, we also need to think back, you know, and imagine a time when there weren't synthetic dyes where pretty much any of us can, can buy a shirt of more or less any color. And we can assume that it'll probably, um, the color will remain after a number of washes, right? Uh, we need to think be, before synthetic dyes and think, you know, so think about the materiality of these dyes as well, and particularly reds and, bl- and, br- and blacks were, were so expensive because they were so difficult to um, really remain in the clothes um, for long. Um, and I should say, though, that, you know, that's kind of like the overarching um, framework here. But th- there's lots of, um, I think, exceptions to that rule, too. And we are we are finding, I think, particularly in the 16th century, though, that lots of people of maybe even the middling classes did um, because of the secondhand trade in clothes, right? And all of these clothes were reused, recut, and once they, you know, and, and were, were passed down, um, that uh, people of all different sorts might own a garment or two that was a little bit more colorful, a little bit more sort of splendid than we might think. But nevertheless, this was a way that that rulers set themselves apart, right? Convince the people that they ruled that they that they deserve to be in power. Um, so I... I think it would be helpful for all of us to think about for you to walk us through, you know, what, what are these men wearing? And, you know, one, one, one aspect of your book that interests me is the relationship between this brilliance and militarism. And um, we're going to talk some specifics here just to help out some of us who aren't art historians, like, cause to the untrained eye, I have to say tunics, doublets, the little hose, they all seem pretty far from modern notions of masculinity and particularly military masculinity. Um, so could you maybe walk us through, you know, what princely dress of the Quattrocento is and how it's, and how much of it is what I've learned from your book is tied to military ethos. Yeah, so a lot of the garments, you know, sort of in different ways, derive from military garments. Um, and I think too, one of the things that I, I sort of realized about um, about these princes is they very often sort of, I mean, their clothes is their clothes are very metallic. So in, either in terms of brocades, they have lots of spangles hanging down. They wear components of armor. You know, the idea of a suit of armor is, is sort of an anachronistic one. That was very, 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 very rarely worn. But these princes all the time were, were like hunks and chunks of armor here and there on their legs or um, maybe just a, a cuirass on, on, the, uh, on their upper body or some kind of um, some kind of protective upper body garment. There, there are various different sorts, or even sort of just like jutting bits of metal um, to suggest that these these men could um, could could carry a lance if they needed. Or very often, and you see this in some images. Um, there's a, I think, one that I reproduce is a, the, 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 a portrait by Cosme Tura in the Met, um, where they have little hanging strings 
with um, um, on their shoulders. Um, these are called arming points with with metal at the very end. Sort of, it looks like a shoelace um, with 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 metal at the end instead of instead of plastic that you might be familiar with. And those are worn to tie armor to the upper body garments. Um, but for a couple of decades in the, the the period that I studied, particularly the 1460s, 1470s. These were worn by men, even if they had no intention of wearing armor. You see them also in, in Andrea Mantegna's famous frescoes in, in Mantua. A number of the, the adult men and even like young boys are wearing these armor, arming points. Uh, but, I, but I found maybe, that, that just that point interesting. It reminds me of modern day camouflage where people are not are wearing camouflage, but they have no probable intention of going out into the woods and and with you know in, in work absolutely work. and they're not hiding from yeah. anyone too right they're wearing right. their camouflage like conspicuously so in that New people York notice City. them right right they're, they're doing the right. opposite of what you know right. what camouflage should be used for so it's meant it's meant to recall militarism and, and the same was with maybe just to walk people through i mean i think we're all familiar with these paintings of men in what look like short skirts but maybe you can explain what what that is the doublet yeah. and the yeah so what 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 men of sort of most men, not even just not, you know, a, a sort of all men in, in 15th century Italy would have worn some, maybe three layers of clothing or maybe two if they were laborers, um, but ideally three. And the bottom layer would be a, some kind of linen shirt, a, you know, camicia of some sort or camisa of some sort, and then some kind of, um, you know, mutande or, or linen underwear, um, not, not only linen, but I think that's, that's typical. And then above that, you would wear... Um, sort of like doublets and stockings, calze, and they are often hooked or tied to each other, right? So that the, the the stockings, which in this period are not knit quite yet, um, but they're they're sort of um, they're attached up the back, sewn sewn up the back, um, to to really hold tight to the body to fashion this this sort of what I think what we'll talk about is this ideal slender, ideally slender silhouette. They had to be held up tight, and so they were laced to doublets and you see this a lot if you're looking at renaissance paintings if you look around the waist you'll see like little cords flapping around or particularly if there isn't a long mantle worn on on the outside layer or or, or tunic you see these and they're really to sort of encase the body but the hold hold the two garments in place the upper body doublet and the lower body um, stockings or hose and then above this on the kind of outer layer you would wear a garment that would, you know, generally keep you keep you warm, but also this was an important um, garment and the most important garment for for one of the most important important garments for display, um, and the sort of in Florence and in Venice, where there are republics that had you know these kind of ideologies of austerity and um, rule being passed down since time immemorial, so unchangeable fashion. It was important to wear kind of long garments that hid the body. Right, and there are a number of types of, of garments that that men would wear. Um, very, and and all, and then if you're the more important you were, the more sort of expensive your dye would be. So you see a lot of reds and, and blacks and those kind of ranks of somber men. But at the courts, you're more likely to wear um, a much shorter kind of tunic rather than a, a long, long mantle. And it can have all sorts of different um, attached capes. I'm sorry, sorry attached sleeves. Sometimes capes or, or, or other mantles behind them. Some of them came quite short, you know, well above the knees um, as a way to show off kind of ideally beautiful male legs. Um, also, I, you know, some of them were kind of very often tied tight with a, with a belt. 
So the most common of these tunics that I see in my documents and that we see in a lot of, of, of Renaissance images are known as journée. Or so the journée was a, a, a quite type, uh, sorry, a quite tight garment um, uh, um, tunic. And, but that's just sort of one of many different types of cuts of, of these sorts of garments. Um, and then of course, a lot of the, most of these aristocratic men would also wear a cap on top. Um, and th- th- these hats would have different sorts of meanings inherent in them. And um, I think at the courts of Italy, they're very often, again, red or what they would have called crimson because of the expense of the dye. Um, and then all of these le- levels or layers, at least the, the, the second and the third, could be infused with gems. We see lots of calze, for instance, lots of hose that have metallic um, emblems embroidered or have dozens of gems on them. And the same would be true for, for hats and for, um, for, for tunics as well, too. Um, and even sort of doublets, particularly if the doublet um, would emerge from the tunic and you could see the sleeves, they might be um, embroidered or brocaded too, or they just might be um, a kind of plain silk or some kind of silk with a design, like like damask or 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 like a, a you know a, a more um, textural textural silk like 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 velvet. You know, you mentioned the long tunics of Venice and Florence republics, but um, but then you also, I think, in your book, you make a nice point of showing how this is sort of a fungible uh, border between republics and. And courts as well. I mean, you would see the short tunics in the republics at times, and Lorenzo de' Medici even has a gift from, I believe you mentioned from the Sforza family that you know of shorter tunics, and I can think of a few paintings with them as well. So it sounds, it sounds like there's there's some um, you can't draw distinct lines always, at least. Unless Absolutely. I maybe misunderstood that. Okay. Yeah, and I mean that's something I definitely try to you know take on in the introduction of my book, and 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 you know it has to do with you know youth and you know Florence and Venice. If you think of the Company delle Calze, right, in in Venice, where there are there's a moment for display of male bodies, and and it's just for the youths in in, in Florence and Venice. But then once you become once you reach adulthood and you're part of the more officially part of the government, it's important that you sort of like don't show your body and, and you have this sense of, yeah, like I said, austerity and sobriety, um, which is very much reflected and, and sort of produced even by clothes. And that may be different in the courts because I, I, was, I, was, I was struck really by some of your images of older men in the short tunic with the hose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, was, that was actually pretty interesting. Um, uh, moving on, like one of the th- themes that uh, your book repeatedly demonstrates, one of the ones that really, you know, hits home for me is that our modern notions of gender and dress are just not adequate for understanding the quattrocento aristocratic men. And I think it's your chapter on gems that makes this point really in, in, in an unambiguous way. Precious, maybe because precious stones in our own culture are almost exclusively associated with women, and, you know, that just doesn't seem to be the case in the Quattrocento, uh, which I did know. But what I didn't know, and I found this detail so interesting, was that women and men would actually wear the exact same stone, particularly if it's a famous stone on different occasions, on a maybe a cord around their neck or some other setting. Um, so maybe you can talk about that. But also just the, the role of gems, be they real or manufactured, in, uh, in creating this noble masculinity. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, you know, and I think it's, 
when you ask the question noble and masculinity, both of those words are just as important, right? And and I try to set this out in in a certain way. I mean, obviously, this is a book. I mean, the 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 um, subtitle is "Fashioning Courtly Men in Early Renaissance Italy," and it's very much about masculinity, but it's just as much about nobility. And everything that I'm saying here is, you know, arguing is just as sort of class or status specific as it is gender specific, right? Um, and so sort of there are differences in display um, between noble, between elite genders here, um, but there are also a huge number of similarities, right? Both of these, both men and women um, of the aristocracy in early Renaissance Italy were expected to show their station by dressing in um, expensive, but also sort of light, um, light intense garments and 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 uh, also to be wearing the all to be you know studded studded with gems um but this was a sign of their nobility there was nothing sort of suspicious in terms of or very little suspicious in terms of their sort of their masculinity we have examples of literally dozens and dozens of 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 gems on on calze um, um some large sleeves that were worn by some of the sforza princes would have had Again, literally hundreds of, of um, gems on them. Um, they would have shown off and collected enormous um, uh, brooches, formaggi, uh, um, and, and other sorts of um, gold chains with large hanging gems as well. And these would have also you know, been seen with a background of some kind of shimmering, often metallic, um, silk as well. So you can just imagine kind of, you know, and a lot of the when people are describing some of these gems, this is what they talk about, that they're flashing, that they're almost like flamboyant. So these gems very often, because they were so they were worth so much money and they, they were associated with people, um, they were associated with the identity of their owners and particularly when they were passed down or when they were traded. There are letters between, for instance, Lorenzo de' Medici and Galeazzo Maria Sforza, the Duke of Milan, trying to, you know, uh, Galeazzo is begging for this one gem that he's heard about that he wants to that he wants to have um, and actually that he wants to give to his mistress, um, but that Lorenzo is, does not want to, does not want to get rid of. Um, and so some of these gems, particularly um, in uh, th- this one gem that I trace, which probably is not in the portrait of um, Galeazzo Maria Sforza in the um, in the Uffizi, uh, probably the most famous image of him by Pier del Palaiuolo, um, but it, it might be, and one scholar thinks it is. But I, I was able to trace this gem down a number of different um, to a number of different owners over, over a number of different generations, and it was worn by men and by women, um, and, and in all cases, it was a sign of aristocratic status. So it, again, it wasn't you know. Um, and it, it sometimes did have different, um, lig- a, a, a different kind of ligature or a different sort of setting on it, um, but it was so well known that it had um, a nickname, more or less. So these g- and gems take on identities um, as they kind of move within families and, and even between families. And this wasn't r- necessarily rare. There were a number of other gems that have nicknames because sometimes they were engraved or they have some kind of particular visual property. Um, to them. But the other thing I, I wanted to say, too, is that, um, well, you know, I mean, some readers might or some listeners might be, you know, rolling their eyes a little bit. Well, you know, it, wasn't there any threat of unmanliness or effeminacy if you wore too many gems? Um, and there are voices that emerge. And, and I think, you know, so it's important to kind of think about them. Um, the only time any of these princes are 
um, criticized for wearing gems there is when they're already ha- there's a, the, 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 the speaker, the person who's, who's criticizing them already has some reason to do so. Um, and for instance, Pope um, Pius II um, did not get along and, and with Borso, um, the, the Borso d'Este, the ruler of Ferrara, and he slandered him in lots of different ways throughout his um, Pius's commentaries. Um, he was mainly upset that Borso wouldn't contribute to his crusade, but there were other reasons that for a while they had been close, um, but um, they, they, they had a falling out over, over um, Pius' uh, plans for a crusade. So then he started criticizing Borso for being a little too vain and a little too um, just interested only in appearing magnificence rather than um, being magnificent. And the, the same thing, there was a, there's a um, um, Pontan, Giovanni Pontano, a, a humanist, when he was in Naples, um, he had been connected with the Sforza court earlier, and he started criticizing Galeazzo for wearing fake gems. Um, uh, Galeazzo Maria Sforza, the Duke of Milan, after he had after he had been assassinated for wearing fake gems and not being a true lord so it's it actually most of these um most of the criticisms are about sort of like a moderate um nobleness or or um or inauthentic nobleness but there it's not necessarily because there's any sense that their that their masculinity was in was um in doubt or their masculinity was was um, problematic or suspicious in any way um, I found it, that that point to be really. Um, I, I don't know that the word shocking is is right, but I, I maybe unexpected by because I'm I'm accustomed to seeing studies about female. You know, I think for decades, we've had so much work done on women's dress and sumptuary laws and misogynistic writings about female vanity, and so I assumed that it would also seep through into men's display of splendor but it doesn't seem to with these princes well and you know and i i've thought about this question and i had this question before and i too wonder you know um those are just sort of not the sources that i've we have or that i found right i I can imagine that lots of these that lots of these men's subjects would have been you know upset with them for any number of reasons and and i think this is one of the main things i want to point out and i want to the case I want to make in these books is that we're seduced by all of this, but these were awful people. Right. And, and, um, and I, you know, I, I sort of love these princes because they're the gift that keeps on giving, but they're just um, in terms of like their awfulness, but they, they are horrific, horrendous people. um, And I don't have any sympathy for them. And I, I I imagine that a lot of their, their um, subjects would as well, but we don't, I, I don't have those kind of voices. The only critics I have really come from, you know, from other humanists or, um, and, and, you know, there, there absolutely were a number of times, uh, particularly whenever um, anyone was sick or died, where the, the, the popular would fight back. Um, so we do have some sense, you know, that, that, that these princes were always ruling on kind of like a very, very, they're always skating on very, very thin ice. Um, and this, you know, how they displayed themselves, how they showed themselves as, as, as these splendid, shiny, noble men was was the main tool of keeping power. So I imagine that there was a lot of sort of like, um, you know, people upset with them and, and would have thought that they were kind of ridiculous and vain. And, and you know, probably they would have understood that a lot of these gems were fake and, you know, they would have connected that to some kind of fake, you know, rule. Um, but but I just, I would love to find more of those those which I'm sure are there. They're just, they're generally not voiced by the sort of like elite people producing, um, you know, literature and, and, and right. uh, 
It's a, it's a matter of what sources are available to us, maybe that, the message that we get. But um, I will say, I when, when you describe what they're wearing and them being awful people, they, they're awful people wearing like 50 pounds of stockings. I, I, and they must have been uncomfortable as well as awful. Yeah, and they talk about this too. And, and um, you know, I, I think I have, I have one example where um, um, this Forza Prince, when he, I think he's 12 or 14 or something like that, tears his doublet off at the dinner table um, because it's just, it's, too tight and he can't eat. And um, his grandmother is there and she is not happy about this at all. She reports back to his father and his mother about how, uh, because he was wearing um, this this particularly nice garment when there was a visiting Duke um, from, from France actually. And so there was, um, you know, clearly these men were uncomfortable. There's a um, forensic pathologist at University of Pisa, Gino Fornachari, and then um, an Antonio Fornachari um, of relation, who has studied some of some of the bodies, because a lot of these princes were embalmed. So Sigismundo Malatesta and Francesco, sorry, Federico Gonzaga, and then some of the um, Neapolitan kings, their bodies have been exhumed and studied and they do have lots of kind of like compressed um, bones from wearing armor from um, hours and hours spent on horseback all kinds of um, damage from from swords as well too so you know these men did suffer kind of a violent existence part of which was because of the need to display the body and the need to um, be so sort of militaristically um, uh, seen um, well, that takes me to the, my next question, which is about bodies. So uh, I found your chapter on men's bodies, so, um, which I think has some of this discussion about men's uh, bones being compressed also uh, being very exciting because w- what's so obvious to the even the untrained eye are how many men's legs are on display. And you, and you talk about this, how women's legs are hidden and men's legs are on display. But, but you also... Uh, bring our attention to the slender figure um, that men were um, apparently uh, eager to display as well. And um, I sort of find it interesting to think about this focus on men's body image. So I wanted wanted you to share with the listeners this amazing story about Galeazzo Sforza's ill-fated Corazzina and maybe help us understand how he and other men were preoccupied with their body image and what was that idealized body that they were seeking to achieve. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it goes back to kind of what we, what I was talking about with this, particularly with the, the doublet attached to the calce, producing the slender ideal. And most, if you were at rest um, and you're a Renaissance prince or a courtier in the 15th century, you probably wear the third outer body tunic. Um, but when you were, you know, um, running around showing, uh, you know, doing something where you had to show um, agility, you would take off that outer um, level and you would just wear your tunic and your doublet. Um, and, but even with the third, and that's when you would really show off kind of like both how agile you were, how slender and lithe you are. Right. And it, it, it was, there was this idea of a very, very kind of, um, you know, s- slender figure. We see this also in, in 15th century sort of um, chivalric poetry. Um, this is what also that's the ideal that kind of emerges from descriptions of bodies and a lot of the correspondence between um, courts through through the resident ambassadors, which are um, sort of a relatively new new thing, a new phenomenon in in, in, in 15th century Italy. Um, 
And these men were obsessed with how they looked, both how they looked generally, but also their their body image in ways that I think, you know, is, I think, very familiar to us. They didn't sort of have the same language that that we do, but they reflect the same concerns and and also the same sort of like nasty um, discipline from from others. So Ludovico Gonzaga, the, the, the main prince in Andrea Mantegna's Frescos in Mantegna, he talks about in letters to his son, who he thinks is overweight, about how when he was a small child, he um, was ridiculed by his father, and his father threatened to sort of demote him and to make his younger and more handsome and um, better shaped brother, Carlo, his younger brother, to make him his heir, just because of because of how he looked. So he talks about how, and he um, he says his dad called him a fat pig, you know, just sort of like horrific things that I think, you know, sound like the worst of middle school bullying today. I mean, he talks about how he just dieted and didn't sleep and drank water so that he could kind of get into shape. Um, and and some of there are a lot of examples. I found a couple of examples of other Gonzaga family members insulting others, um, you know, for, for 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 being out of shape. But then the, the sort of most famous example of this that I kind of um, that I use mentioned a couple times in the book is this um, the ruler of Milan, the Duke of Milan, Galeazzo Sforza, who is. There are a number of um, towards he, he ends up being assassinated, and in the, the months before that, there are a number of assassination attempts on his life. So he knows that he needs to be careful. He knows that he needs to protect himself, um, and he's surrounded by his. Um, he has a number of bodyguards with him at sort of at all times, and this is it's the day after Christmas, so the Saint Stephen's Day. So he goes to church at the the Church of Santo Stefano, which is at this time an important church in in Milan um, on this important Milanese feast day. And the day that he's about to go to church, he puts on a corazzina, a sort of like a, um, it's kind of like a bulletproof vest for the Renaissance, like a, an, um, so it could be worn over the doublet, it could be worn under it, um, but it, it very often it's filled with um, mail or nails or some kind of protective garment. It's not, it's not plate armor, but it's a textile that's infused with, with metal in some form um, to, to protect him. And according to um, a Sforza historian, who was a um, who was a, one of his courtiers at the time, later on, about two decades later, he's writing. But it, he he was there at the time, so it, it's hard to know if we can exactly trust him. The 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 the, the source Bernardino Corio that this is what happened, but it certainly reveals um, something about fifteenth century male um, you know concern about about bodily display and, and, and body image with that. He put on this court scene when he was about to go to mass and he took it off because he thought he looked too tough. It, it just, he looked too fat with it, with wearing it. Um, An amazing more, story. 20 something times. And it wouldn't have saved his life probably, but nevertheless, he was, he was, um, um, you know, it, I, I call him a, a pseudo uh, proto martyr for fashion, right? Just uh, right. also. Well, the fashion victim, like, <laughs> sort of on the nose. Um, I so I I'm I'm so curious about this. I mean, I want, there's some uh, questions that come to mind that maybe we don't have time to get into the difference that might exist with republics or in the court, or maybe what level in the hierarchy you have. I mean, so these are princes. I mean, is this true for the courtiers? And is and it seems you know you do talk a lot about the courtiers and the sort of pressure on them to be. Um, young and handsome in certain courts. Uh, and the reason I, this comes to mind, of course, is the focus on female beauty. But 
I wonder, and this is unfair, I have an unfair question because you don't mention it in your book, but I am just curious if you've come across any sources here about the non-noble bodies. Um, are, do we, I mean are, I mean, are men showing off their legs, women hiding their legs? Uh, I'm, I'm sure we don't have a lot to go on in terms of their fears about body image because there's probably not the sources there, but what, yeah, what, what I mean, can I, you tell us? I mean, this is, this is a great question and I would like to know more about it. I mean, it's still women very often. So it's in a certain way, I like, I, I try to like to think about it in terms of maybe like cultural visibility that of course, you know, particularly in the lower classes, you would have seen body parts because people, you know, would have been undressed some of the time or would have worn not as expensive clothes, but to, to preserve a, a sense of um, sort of decency and, and just because of the way that fashion um, clothes at the time were cut, right? Women hardly had legs. You, there aren't 15th century love po- poems that talk about women's legs. Women's are beautiful from, from the chest up, right? And I think, you know, think of Petrarch and then maybe also in the, in the hands, right? <clears throat> and then sometimes they very, I mean, they do often have kind of like shapely hips to give you a sense of also, you know, relating to their sort of like ideal childbearing capabilities. But beautiful long legs that we hear in like ZZ Top and, and, and other sorts of 20th century manifestations. When you talk about slender, beautiful legs, they're always going to be male in the 15th century. Um, and it's because, you know, it's a, in a certain way, it's a chicken and the egg thing. And I think this is a question that fashion historians have that how do um, so, so societal ideals relate to cuts of clothes and, and how do they sort of influence each other and, and where is the influence coming from? Or are they sort of developing in, in conjunction, which I think is probably the case here. Um, but at least to be, you know, ideally decent, you wouldn't show this off. But even like, you know, it re, um, Jill Burke's recent book on um, the Italian Renaissance nude showed, you know, one of the, the useful kind of takeaways from, from, from that, I think, very important study is that most people, even when they were considered to be nude, it was because they were they were missing one or two important garments. They weren't what we would consider to be, you know, buck naked or entirely nude like uh, like that. Even the way that this was practiced, not not in representation, but in just in everyday life. Um, so that bodies weren't. I mean, of course, they would have been available. People could see their own bodies and and bodies of family members, um, and probably you know you would have seen. I think wretched bodies, right? Um, dead bodies more often, right? And, um, you know, the bodies that were sort of outside what was considered to, you know, what was um, the, the ideal. But for those that wanted to kind of fit in wherever they fit in in society, um, it would have been, we would have, you would have seen a lot more, a lot less flesh than I think we were used to. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that helpful or? Yeah, no, it's, it's it is helpful. I um, it's 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 just always so striking to me when when I read a book like yours. Well, there aren't many books like yours, to be honest, and that's what's so great is that um, all of these assumptions we have about female beauty. Um, there's obviously in literary studies so much written in from the men, man's point of view about women's beauty. There, it's not that there aren't payons to men's beauty as well. There are, but um, you know, there's a, we have a lot more to learn, um, especially about bodies. I, I, I have to say the, the last chapter really uh, struck me because it was, so, I, I wasn't expecting it, and it's so fascinating, which is on, um, this. you have a study of clothing's role in the construction of nobility through whiteness and blondness. 
And it was such a welcome chapter because any person who teaches Italian literature has students who are always asking about the blonde women. And, um, you know, especially the Orlando Furioso, when you have the princess of, you know, China, Angelica, uh, who has, who's blonde, famously blonde as well, but also, you know, all the way from Petrarch onward, uh, that there's just blonde women throughout Italian literature. And this is the first study I've seen to focus on blonde and pale men. So I I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about how men cultivated the link between whiteness and nobility. Yeah, so, I I mean, in a certain way, it's going back to the same roots, right, of sort of chivalric um, ideals that there is inherent kind of aristocratic status and... um, essence in, in blondness and in paleness, right? And, um, you know, and of course it relates to, to labor and status in different ways, right? These are blue bloods, you know, literally blue bloods, because you can see the, the blue veins in because they're so pale, that are not out in the fields, that are not out in the wind, right? That are, that are soft and are, and are, and are, and are fair, right? Um, you know, like the, the fair princess, I call these, these men fair princes. And they are doing things like shielding their body from the skin with these long, uh, or sorry, very wide straw hats that um, you see in, in a couple of paintings by Pisanello, for instance, or in the, the, the frescoes of the camera, um, sorry, the, the, the frescoes of the Salone di Mesi at, at Schifanoia. And men collected these hats to, to keep their, to keep um, and, and, and traded them. Um, I should say princes did. To, to keep the sun off their skin. Um, it seems that they sometimes dyed their hair blonde. Um, it's hard to know because, you know, a lot of the sources that we're using both in term, visual sources and literary sources clearly are, um, you know, exaggerating at, at least or completely fabricating things um, that, you know, sometimes, you know, Borso d'Este is described as having, a, you know, a face that is, shines more than the sun and, you know, and having golden locks like, um, like Apollo's. And he seems at least, you know, in some of his early images, he does have blonde hair. Later on, he has, he has gray hair in his images. It's hard to line up representation with reality. Um, and we know that, you know, both artists and, um, those who sort of like praise him both in letters and, and in poems would have been well served by turning him into this, um, prince and, and, and into this chivalric blonde fair prince well the the image you have of the este male family tree I, I don't know how else to put it it's not really a tree but you maybe you just want to tell, tell people what that image looks like that was so striking i mean yeah so there's like there's this este genealogy that it's man, uh, illuminated and i think you know some of the pages they have nine figures on them uh, a number of the pages have nine figures and essentially all of the all of the princes are are blonde Right. And, and this genealogy served that, you know, it, it's a complicated story because the Este also um, they they were passing um, their rule down to a number of um, bastards, essentially, and uh, illegitimate sons. And towards the end, when it went from Leonello to Borso and then Borso to Ercole, there was Leonello's son who was in the mix and um, was was passed over. So this Im- the, this manuscript constructs a, a particular version of an Este um, lineage, but it's one in which Ercole essentially wants to show that all the people who were ruling before him were ideal princes, and it, le- it leads exactly to him. Um, so 
if you want to show someone as the ideal prince, you show them as beautiful and blonde, whether or not they necessarily were, right? And if you want to, you know, praise someone for being the ideal prince, this is how you do that. Uh, but I also in this, you know, in this chapter, also wanted to think about how this relates to ideals of European whiteness, um, even white supremacy, emerging ideals about race at this time, where particularly when Borso d'Este, for instance, was in the Plaza Schifanoia, was, um, you know, putting himself against um, figures who were uncourtly in certain ways, including, um, you know, figures who may have been of African descent or certainly in figures who were who clearly were of lower classes and spent a lot of time in um, out, out in the fields and were, um, were their bodies were worn because of those reasons. At the same time, that there's an increasingly you know increasing number of of of, of black figures in black men and women in um, in Europe, um, and there certainly certainly had been. But uh, you know, I think this is an important part of the story. Also, particularly when the, the one of the rulers of Milan is known as Il Moro, right and um, because in he, Ludovico Moro Sforza, he had gotten that nickname from when he was born. Um, there's a letter from his mother to his father, who's away, mentioning that he is darker than any of their other children. And so this was worn, obviously, as a sign of respect. This was this was not a this was um, not derogatory at all. So so how does this fit into um, ideals about European whiteness and an ideal noble fairness? Um, is is something that I try to take on in this chapter too. I, again, I, I think, I, it, you know, there's more questions probably than answers, but I, I know that it, it helps me think about the uh, ubiquity of blonde women as well. Um, and one of my favorite stories, which you didn't just mention, but I, I want to bring it up, is that the conflicting story about, um, you, you, you mentioned one source which talks about, I think, about a son that has blonde hair, and then there's another source that does not describe the son in blonde terms am i am i remembering this correctly that i'm not exactly sure uh well and, and, and right anyway there's all these but i, I think and you, you you do talk about how borso d'este is is described that way too there are, the, absolutely the, are times when yeah we yeah. can't believe a source yes right so uh, this moves us to the epilogue of the book which is the the 16th century mainly but this where we see a trend of men wearing black and you know most of us uh, who are familiar with seeing portraits of Renaissance Italian Renaissance men are used to seeing these men all in black and I'm thinking you know how do we get from the flashy gold of the Quattrocento to the ubiquitous black dress in the Cinquecento and uh, you know I, I I'm gonna ask because I think you address this really well in your book um, how this relates to the men's re- renunciation of fashion, which is what it's been called by other people. Yeah. So, I mean, it's weird that the, the, the great male uh, renunciation of fashion is, is something that I think we're all familiar with. It, it, it's clearly a phenomenon, but then also it, 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 it I guess like all kind of great historical narratives, there's a lot of untruth to it too, right? Just the idea. And, and there's been a million sorts of, not a million, but a good number of, of, um, of attempted explanations for why it is in the you know 16th, 17th, 18th century, men were no longer seen as peacocks. When men were wearing you know grays and blacks only, right? And 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 I have students understand you know think about this today and you know in corporate culture, what would happen if you know the CEO showed up in some of and, and the colors that we see um, 
these Renaissance princes wearing, right? They wouldn't be taken seriously. Although, of course, there are certain, um, you know, increasingly, I think men are, um, you know, both in terms of um, popular culture generally, like men can dress up more. So, so we're so we're getting away from that. Um, but black dress sort of came in again. It's not. I, I, scholars have liked to find a moment where it changed, you know, and have associated it with the Industrial Revolution or the Protestant Reformation or the Wars of Italy, right? That that you'd be that you, you you've written so much about, um, and it kind of there's always whenever you whenever you you think you you understand what happened, you'll find that there's a million exceptions to it as well. And there were 14th century princes wearing black. They were, of course. Um, and one of the things that I think art historians repeat without really thinking about it is they just, when they see black clothing, they think it's Spanish because of sort of the mid to late 16th century Habsburg um, with Charles and Philip um, interest in, 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 in black clothing. And they did eventually take that on. But but Charles V, for instance, was wearing bright clothes in, in early in his life um, before that. And there were lots of Europeans that were wearing black who weren't Spanish. And in, in the 1490s, if you look at what Spanish dresses in Milan, for instance, it has nothing to do with black. It very often, it sometimes has to do with color, but it could be white. It very often has to do with like cuts of fabric as well too. So there isn't one overarching answer, but there is cl- clearly, I think with the wars of Italy is, is it does sort of bring this, usher this in. There's a sense of needing to sort of be more sober. Um, but at the same time too, black clothing is extremely expensive. So, um, particularly to be able to get the blacks that we see. Um, it's many, many vats of dye, many, many different sort of ingredients. And then until the late 16th century, when logwood comes from um, what's now Belize and Mexico, and that sort of revolutionary, revolutionary revolutionizes black clothing. Although that black then is very, very glossy and lustrous. So it still is an, a sign of expense, and it's it's something that the the lower classes can't afford, even if they're because their clothing was more likely to be much more kind of dull, even if it is drab and, and dark. It's nothing like the glossy black, which then the you know these lords understand is a perfect background for all their shiny things. So even most of the the famously black 16th century Italian lords, when you look at what they wore, they wore black, but they wore pearls and and little sp- golden spangles too. So there's more continuity, I think, even. With with what I call the the black is the new gold um, in, in in the 16th century um, that it still is all about prestige and, and and even luster but just shown in a different sort of way. Yes, I I, I loved that black is the new gold. I, it's it's hardly a renunciation of fashion. It seems to actually just be a a new a new a continuation. Fashion. Yes. Right. Uh, especially when you read Castiglione's obsession with having the right cape or the right cloak. Even Ariosto will, will complain about not having the right clothing. We should, we should write an article, The Great Masculine Continuation of Fashion. <laughs> exactly. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare. You, you're the expert no, we, here. No, we should. Okay. <laughs> um, well, look, I, I mean, this has been great to talk to you. I, I've taken a lot of your time. I mean, do you want to tell us what you're working on now at the moment? Sure. Um, well, I'm like this large project. Um, I'm sort of just beginning, although it's beginning for a while, but kind of start, starts and stops and starts is is on the material materiality of, of fashion. Sort of all the wars that were fought over 
um, dyes and mordants like logwood and cochineal and and mordants like alum that one of like the, the greatest atrocities of the 15th century Italy this the, the siege of Volterra with lots of people killed um, and 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 sacked um, relate, uh, involving Lorenzo de Medici and Federico Gonzaga two of the great kind of you know Renaissance princes that we hold up as as great pa- enlightened patrons of the art was um, took place because of um, uh, uh, the, the Volterans had had found alum, right, a mordant. Um, so something a mordant is something that allows for these kind of dyes to um, literally to bite into, but to to hold fast to to textiles. So I mean, I, I think that scholars have known that you know the economies of of the Italian city states in the Renaissance were so heavily uh, related, you know, were driven by the production of clothing from kind of raw materials to, to finished products. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- 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 a, um, a future project on the material, materiality of the fashion to not just look at kind of like the finished garments, but, but all the things that they came from, um, with a more kind of global, um, look. Um, so that's sort of more into the future and, um, more immediately, um, next year, hopefully, um, I have a book coming out, uh, either 2003 or sorry, 23 or 24, there's a book coming out with reaction press uh, called making the Renaissance man, which in a certain way is kind of like a second part of this book. But um, instead of about clothing and adornment, it's about all of the things that these men did. Um, they, um, they seduce mistresses, they seduced men and boys. They um, uh, traded animals and were obsessed with falconing and hunting um, and, and, and their dogs generally. They fought in jousts. They collected armor. Um, I'm forgetting a couple of things, but it's, it's mainly about the history of sort of like performance of maleness and, 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 and masculine sexuality, again, um, at, at a kind of elite level. Um, and this so is, and what's the title again so we can look moment. out for it? I'm sorry? What's the title again so we uh, can look out for it? Making the Renaissance Man. Excellent. Fantastic. Although now I think maybe we should be making Renaissance men. I'm not sure, but it's um, it's in production right now. With uh, well, we won't hold you to it. <laughs> the title, if you want to change. Well, Tim, this was great to talk to you, and I look forward to maybe doing this again when the new book comes out. So I appreciate it, Gary. This is this has been fun. I feel like I've talked too much, but you you asked some all. really good questions that have spurred me. So this was exciting. Fantastic. All right. Thank you again. Thank you.